Hey everyone, welcome to another fantastic episode of the Encounter Grow Witness podcast with the awesome Beth Spazarni here talking about how we can be better joyful missionary disciples, especially in the work we do in the Archdiocese of Detroit. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Fantastic. It's a beautiful fall day here in Michigan. Uh, Yeah, it's beautiful. And what also makes me fantastic, and I think both of us, is that we get to spend a little bit of time with Julianne Stans from the Diocese of Green Bay. Julianne, how are you? I'm good. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. So you've uh, spoken to us in our um, Unleash the Gospel conference uh, that we had a couple of years ago during COVID. So we got the digital version of you, which was a lot of fun. So thank you for that. And you've spoken all over. Lots of people, I think, know your work and have read some of your books as well and have been blessed by your ministry. So we're really grateful for you being here. It's an honor. I'm really a big fan of the work that you're all doing. I tune in, I listen, I creep online, all of the good things that are coming out. So it's great to be here with you all today. So we've been planning to have this conversation. I know Beth and I have been talking about wanting to talk with you for a number of months now and trying to set it up and run into a couple of snags. But uh, one of the things since we planned that uh, we saw was that um, you and the Pope were hanging out. Uh, and that was really cool. So maybe just tell us about that a little bit. Oh, this was such an amazing experience for me. So a um, couple of years ago, um, Edmundo Reyes and Emily May Mentalk had reached out to me and asked if I would be an advisor to something uh, that they were working on related to the catechism, bringing the catechism alive for a new generation. And I said yes, but only if I could kind of hang back behind the scenes. I really wanted the opportunity to learn how young people were imaging and creating video content to reach newer generations. And so I thought it would be a good opportunity to learn from them. And so I think it was early in March, um, we received a letter from um, Archbishop Fisichella, who is the head of the Pontifical Council for the New Evangelization. Now, interesting little side note, I had met him back in 2013 in Rome at um, one of the international congresses on catechesis. Well, he invited all three of us to come to address the third international congress on catechesis. So um, we were given a 15 minute spot, literally our 15 minutes of Vatican fame to (laughs) to speak. And and we sat back in our seats after our um, speaking was done. And then three Swiss guard came and said, hey, you need to come with us right now. And I was like, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? So I was like, shh, (laughs) this is the line to meet the Holy Father. And I started crying. So there's this really great picture of us with him beaming, joyful smile. And I really treasure that. But then the official Vatican picture is of me, red nose, tears running down my face. (laughs) (laughs) So it was just, uh, it was a beautiful moment and just so encouraging to see together with 80 countries, 80 80 Mm -hmm. delegates Um, um, from uh, 1400 delegates from 80 countries all around the world. So it was just incredible. Amazing. Yeah, we were so excited to see it. We actually had Emily Mentuck on this podcast a few months back to talk about that project. And we were so excited. So yeah, what a neat thing. Yeah, real plus true. Yeah, it was really a great opportunity for us. And then I'm just coming back because we had a papal audience in Rome two weeks ago with the Holy Father for his discernment 
audiences. Um, and he was leaning into Ignatian spirituality. So I was on an Ignatian pilgrimage. And so I wanted to be like, hello, I'm here. Do you remember me? I was the lady crying. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, sure he did. You. Yeah, I'm sure he did, right? He gave me that like, I know you from somewhere. Look, probably. That's what we always hope for, right? <laughs> Well, Julian, you've been able to do so many different projects and so many great different ministries and apostolates. What do you love most about working for the church? That's a great question. I think for me, it's being out in our parishes. And mm. so I am out in our parishes every single day. We have 156 parishes here in the Diocese of Green Bay. And in fact, I'm heading out tonight. And what I love about being out in our parishes is seeing regular, ordinary, everyday people doing extraordinary things for Christ. And that's mm some of the most hopeful work that I see consistently and on a regular basis, people who are, you know, living out their vocation, who are um, trying to raise their children in this culture where it's hard, it's getting harder um, and really seeing, you know, people problem solve, with fewer resources. So to be at the intersection of that conversation, that is consistently the best and most important work that I think we could be doing as a church. That's so exciting. I mean, as just as someone working in a parish, that's so exciting. How do you get out into a parish every single day on top I mean, of everything else you're doing? I make time. So, you know, I'm driving from my home and, you know, I know Father so-and-so, his rectory is on the street corner, just pop in, he's had mass, he gives me potatoes from his garden. You know, a couple of days later, I go back and I've made him potato chowder because we're <laughs> Irish and there isn't a potato we don't love. Um, but I just think it's, it's making time. It's um, it's finding time every day to be consistent. And if there's a day yeah. where I can't physically get out, I'm on the phone. I try really hard to get out though, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll often like call someone or just not even about a project, just, hey, father, how are you doing? Hey, um, you know, parish staff member, um, just really have the opportunity to kind of uh, work together on some projects. And so you make time. People are the most important. Yeah. Awesome. What do you, where do you, what do you see the Holy Spirit doing in the church today? That's a, that's an amazing question. I just that's, think so often we're focused on the challenges that we're facing, you know, and the challenges working in the church, but yeah, there's so much beauty going on. What, where do you see the Holy Spirit moving? That is a great question. Um, I was thinking about this this morning on my drive in, you know, what gets me up every day? You know, I have three children and I want the church to be vibrant and healthy for them. So that is yeah. always on my mind, right? As, as you know, how do we leave a legacy as Christians that can continue to move? And, 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 and I also think, and this is kind of an interesting thing. If we are aware of the urgency to proclaim the gospel, I think it will set within us a fire that only comes from the Holy Spirit to continue to move, to innovate, to be flexible. And when you're surrounded by the culture on all sides, you can pick any angle and you can move forward. And that is, to me, that is a great, um, it gives me great creativity and freedom to say, you know, the well never runs dry if you're connected mm -hmm. to the source. So keep going, keep moving forward, try new things, um, innovate, create, um, don't be afraid, you know, um, I just think that there's so much opportunity for us today. People are hungry. They're hungry for hope. They're starving for truth. They're, they want to find meaning and love in their lives. Yeah, we've, uh, we were talking about the Eucharistic Congress or the, sorry, the Eucharistic Revival that the church in the United States is planning. 
um, that this really, in my mind, came from a couple of years ago, a study about how so many people in our parishes or who identify as Catholics don't understand the real presence mm -hmm. of the Eucharist and the power of the Eucharist, how central the Eucharist is to our Catholic faith. And so I think there was great wisdom and innovation, as you talked about, uh, among our bishops to call us to this. Do you, how do you see this Eucharistic revival being uh, a blessing or a need for our churches here in the United States as we're kind of working our way through the first year of this three-year program? Yeah, and you know, and I've been in the middle of those conversation, conversations, pardon me, as a consultant at the USCCB for many years now, but I also remaining tied to the reality of the ground on the ground. You know, I realized when I was lecturing at my parish a couple of years ago that there were five children under the age of 18 at our parish. It's very rural and small. So I need mm -hmm. to say that, but three of them were my own. Wow. And, and then because during COVID, I, I had an interesting spiritual lesson. I was sitting up away from the altar, but typically not where the lectures typically sit. You know, they come up from the central body. I was sitting off to the side because of social distancing at that time. And after I had received the Eucharist, I was able to see the faces of people coming up to receive the Eucharist for the first time. And I tried obviously to keep my eyes down to give people their dignity in that moment. But I happened to look up just because my children were there, just as a gentleman stepped up to receive the Eucharist. And I, and he was, I would, I'll never forget his hands. They were gnarled, they were arthritic. They were, you know, they were the hands that had, you know, worked with the earth. He was a farmer. You could see yeah. from his boots and his hands. And he stepped up and as he received the Eucharist, he just looked up at the crucifix and he said, thank you, Jesus. And mm -hmm. he had tears in his eyes. And that to me, that was such a precious moment for me to see because I realized there's such a great hunger today. There's, you know, we have a crisis of the deaths by despair. Um, but at the center of all of that stands the, the person of Jesus. And there is no more intimate way than we can receive Jesus than in the Eucharist. And so I think we have to recover, not just a Eucharistic theology, but a Eucharistic spirituality that's very real and palpable in our parishes. And that when we, we do receive Jesus, that we then become, as I tell my children, tabernacles with feet, and we move the presence of Jesus out into the world. And that image always resonates with my children because they understand now they take, they receive, but then they go to give. And I think the Eucharistic revival is a, is a huge opportunity for us um, to refocus, I think, as a church on what is essential, on who is essential, to look at our um, Eucharistic theology and our catechesis efforts with our families and to really, I think, lean into this moment um, of unity as a church. I think the simplicity of, of that, how important it is to make sure that all of our efforts are really helping people on the ground and we're not getting caught up in our heads or, you know, 72 point plans that then become impossible to implement, you know, mm -hmm. having preached like week by week in, in a parish uh, and and just kind of working my way through what works, what doesn't work. Uh, I remember the homily I've gotten the most feedback from was a first communion homily where I was talking to these children and just gave them simple instruction. As you're walking up to receive communion, just say in your heart, Jesus, I love you. Aww. As you receive Holy Communion, just say, Jesus, thank you. And as you go back to your pew and kneel down, say, Jesus, I want to follow you. 
And then I, I had them repeat it after me, um, you know, to mm -hmm. varying degrees of success, how they were able to remember <laughs> it. But the number of parents that day and really weeks and even months, and it's been, I don't know, a number of years now, uh, a handful of people have come up to me and said, Father, I still remember that. I do that now when I come up. I say, mm -hmm. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, I want to follow you. Oh. And just how how simple things can be to help people to um, make the Eucharistic revival, not just a mega plan that we're all thinking mm -hmm. about, but what can I do in my life to make sure that I'm appreciating the gift of the Eucharist and willing to share that with other people? Yeah, you know, there's two things that comes to mind for me. When I was growing up in Ireland, we were all taught a little song. So like the Irish people are very famous for the strength of their welcome. You know, Cade Mila Falcha means 100,000 welcomes. But as we were going up to receive the Eucharist um, for the first time, we would sing this song, Cade Mila Falcha wrote, at Isa, at Isa, you know, a million welcomes to you, Jesus, come, you know, come into my heart. And so that understanding of us being hospitable to Jesus, that's a revelation for some people. But I think the Blessed Mother teaches us that because I think sometimes we think hospitality is coffee and rolls and donuts and what we eat after mass. And that's part of it. But hospitality is not just about what we do, but how we live. And hospitality means welcoming and inviting new ideas and fresh ways of thinking. The Blessed Mother was hospitable to new life. Mm -hmm. to Jesus Christ. And so to me, um, I think we have to lean into these really practical moments. The other thing that came to mind as you were speaking is um, I bake bread a lot. And, you know, we say that as part of our faith so many times, give us this day our daily bread. And I remember I was baking bread with my son. And so his hands were on the bread. And, and I had this insight that, you know, the process of baking bread you can find in the Paschal mystery. So what do I mean by that? You know, you gather the, the ingredients for bread together, just like mass gathers us in. And then, you know, you add the yeast, the living principle, the life, you know, and then you, when you gather the bread and you start that kneading, that process is, it can be assertive. And you think about Jesus's death on the cross and the crucifixion as being, you know, the apex of, of violence. And then, before bread is baked, it has to rest. Because if we don't rest, we won't rise. And so you see this motif of Good Friday, the rest in the tomb, the silence, and then the rising yeah. to new life. And I, when I'm working with families, I often say, think about your home and the bread and the food you're eating. We're Eucharistic people for a reason. And lots of, lots of things start coming together when you start teasing that out for people. Yeah. What kind of bread do you make? Oh, all kinds. I mean, I did the whole sourdough thing in the pandemic when everybody was doing that. But I'm Irish. We make a lot of soda bread, so we okay. don't use yeast. But I also make an Italian bread that my son, he would literally get up at three in the morning for. He's like, this is good stuff, mama. Wow. <laughs> but he's seven. Wow. So I should say that, too. Oh, my gosh. That's so sweet. I make an but Irish soda bread, but it's not very good. Oh, so I'm sure I'm sure it's not one that the Irish people would admire, but I, I try. Julianne, <laughs> are you a pumpkin spiced latte, pumpkin spiced nonsense this time of year like Beth is? Or are you a, a wise thinking person who turns away from all pumpkin flavored things? Yeah, I, that's a totally careful. neutral question. Though. Completely neutral. Yeah. I'm going to horrify all of you and your listeners. I do not drink coffee. So... Um. Um, I love tea, but there is not 
a pumpkin spice tea. That there would is, make there it. is, there is. Oh. I just discovered a pumpkin be. spice tea. And I, I thought it was a great time. Oh, but Not I do love me a good pumpkin bread. So I do make that pumpkin, dark chocolate chip pumpkin bread. Well, that sounds great. Can we agree on that at least, Steve? Yeah, I'm on board for that. pumpkin okay. bread, yeah. not, not pumpkin right. spice coffee, though. Well, I'm kind of with you on that, Father Stephen. There's a special <laughs> place in purgatory maybe for those folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of not at all, speaking of any of that, but um, question, one of the things that, that we come back to a lot in this podcast is, you know, as we're thinking about people who are leading in parishes and working in parishes, is the, the pitfall of not praying, not making time mm-hmm. for prayer. Um, so, you know, what would be your advice for how we as parish leaders ourselves can bring our own heart into this three-year Eucharistic revival? This, to me, is the central question. Um, yeah. And it's interesting going in and out of parishes almost every day, I can feel when a parish staff is praying together and when they're not. Because the spiritual climate, it's hard to put into words. It's it's taken me a long time to really be able to put this together. But I can tell the degree of closeness, um, watching Mm -hmm. their staff meetings, how they're interacting, whether they read, you know, the two-minute rote prayer, and then they go about their business. That tells you something about what they see as the heart of their business or ministry. Mm. Um, so I always say to parish staff, um, I'll often come in and get them fired up. Yeah, we're going to go out, we're going to evangelize, make disciples. And I'll say, okay, turn to your coworker and pray with them right now. And they're like, what? And I'm like, okay, mm. you, you just got excited about going out and preaching and teaching the gospel, but you can't pray with your coworker. And then there, then there's those awkward things of like, but I don't like her or we don't get along. And I'm like, okay, this is exactly how we should be praying. We should be praying um, out of our discomfort at times um, because prayer isn't just about, you know, cons- consolation, there's desolation involved. So let's, let's practice that. Um, so I often say to parish staff, they're just very simple things that you do. Here's a really, really practical one. Psalm 91, I personally consider it sort of, indispensable uh, for for ministering and evangelization. Um, A good friend of mine is Bishop George from the Diocese of Miao in India. His diocese grew from zero Christians to 984,000. He was just with us this summer in 10 years. And he went from being the first Christian to having this explosion of Christianity. And he said, it's like living in the Acts of the Apostles. And he said, Julianne, Psalm 91 is absolutely critical. When you're engaged in the work of evangelization and reaching souls for Jesus, things happen, attacks will come, and you've got to keep yourself prayed up. So Psalm 91, um, I had talked about this, but some of our staff will pray Psalm 91 for one person. So here's how this works. If someone on the team it is in need of prayer, they'll just send out an email with the subject line 911. And when the team gets that, they pray Psalm 91 for that person. It's something very simple. It's tangible. It's real. Um, I also think things like, um, you know, starting the day with prayer, just gathering everybody and saying, what's on our heart today? What's on our mind? You know, what's coming into our offices? What did we hear on the phone this morning? Who is struggling among us? Those kinds of things can change how we ourselves um, are praying together. And I think they make us more docile to the Holy Spirit. Um, so simple things like that. I think parishes think it has to be this long, extended, we gather. You can certainly do that. But I think when 
prayer punctuates a day and it feels natural, that's more powerful. That's where you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in really, really powerful ways. Yeah. And especially when we don't feel it, when it's hard, Mm -hmm. right? When Mm -hmm. we're struggling. I mean, that's when virtue uh, shows itself, not when it comes natural mm-hmm. or when we're with people we really like or things are going yes. easily, but when it is difficult, that's when kind of our, our true character is shown. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we demonstrate that it's really vital and important to us, um, whether it's during a time of uh, lots of challenges in the church we see now, uh, the remaining faithful in the midst of that, or whether it's when we have to work with coworkers that uh you know, maybe get on our uh, um, get on our nerves a little bit, or we've struggled to connect with in some way. And we know that this is a very real aspect in our parishes. That you know, mm-hmm. our, our little podcast here, Beth and I are trying to assist our uh, our lay ecclesial ministers in Detroit as we talk about the importance of making sure we think about the Eucharistic revival as able to help people on the ground, right? People in the real situation of messy families or messy lives. How do I appreciate the Eucharist um, and let the Eucharist transform me? I think it's just as important as you said, to to think about my prayer life Mm -hmm. and how does that really help me on the ground in the (laughs) situations I'm in, whether it's in my family or working at the parish or dealing with a particular challenge I have. Am I letting Jesus transform me in this moment? Mm-hmm. Or am I looking for this perfect situation with coworkers who are, you know, <laughs> totally on board with everything I have or, or never annoy me? Um, I, how do I see that prayer is meant to conform me to Christ here in this moment? And uh, I like your, you know, the texting 911, praying mm-hmm. Psalm 91. It's awesome. Uh, to let that impact my life here and now. I couldn't have said it better. You know, something that I have a little lesson because it was a lesson for me. You know, when we teach the discipleship process, we always say the first thing that Jesus did was he went away to pray, which tells us that the action in discipleship is always initiated by the Father, right? And it's sustained by the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes we can forget that. So I'll just tell you a funny little story here, but I um, was talking with my bishop actually, and it was after a very long day and a big event. And you know, those days, parish people know them too. You're the first one in the parking lot, last one home at night, feet are tired. And he called me the next day and we were debriefing the experience. And he said, you know, um, have you been meditating on the parable of the soul? Where do you see yourself in that parable? And I said, you know, when you're engaged in this work of building something new, just like the Eucharistic Revival is trying to create this culture um, that really helps people encounter Christ. And sometimes it feels like you are the tiller. You're bending over, it's backbreaking work. You're pulling up weeds, you're planting seeds. And and I have a garden, so this this was really on my heart. And I, I will tell you, I was playing a little tiny violin here, feeling sorry for myself. And we were laughing and he said, you know, what is the soil like? And I said, it's really hard. The soil was really hard and rocky and parched. And then he said to me, but why didn't you pray for rain? And then I realized this was huge because I had been working really, really hard. And yes, I had been praying, but I had been praying like everything depended on me. And the action in discipleship is always born. And so I should have been praying for the rain of God to come down to break up the soil instead of thinking I had, and that was a great lesson for me. And I will tell you that when the the executive team for the National Eucharistic Revival met, 
you know what the first thing we did was? Was not plans, not priorities, not mission, not vision. We went for an entire day and sat in front of the Blessed Sacrament and we talked and we went back in and we talked and we got stuck and we went back in and we had adoration and we had mass and we talked and then we went back in. And um, that was a great lesson for me. We didn't start with a plan. We didn't start with crafting a vision. We started with an encounter with Jesus. And I think that's where parishes need to start too, is is looking at that as the centerpiece. Beautiful. Gosh, it's so tempting. Um, it's just so tempting to, to do, stick with the to-do list, uh, to start with the to-do list and mm-hmm. keep your eyes focused on that and then make time for prayer, you know, later on or something. But praying for rain, it's so funny when we pray, we get way more done in less time because it's not our work. Mm-hmm. And we remember that it's not our work, right? We can get our, yeah, it's, it's, beautiful the moments when I get to experience just the the deep awareness that it's the Lord's work you know mm-hmm. the people who call up RCA and no one even has been talking to them there's no one in their life they just it was all the work of the Lord and I, I always celebrate those not because it, it's great when the Lord uses us too but it's such a great reminder that it's his work it's always mm-hmm. been his work in each one of our hearts and we can you know w- certainly we get to participate and that's amazing and it's an incredible honor but but it's it's always his it's always his work. Ah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, Beth and I have been talking about this for a long time about our work of Unleash the Gospel here in the Archdiocese of Detroit started in, uh, in prayer and in planning and led to our synod and led to the official document in 2017 about Unleash the Gospel. But even with all of that foundation, it is so tempting, as Beth said, to just drift away back into the habits we're used to, or to get caught up in the chaos of the moment and not see that, you know, as the Psalms tell us, unless the Lord builds the house, we are laboring in vain. And Mm. just how we, the constant work of discipleship is bringing myself back to the Lord. Uh, I think of St. Peter having followed the Lord so much and professing, you know, uh, like you are the Christ, the son of the living God in Matthew chapter 16. And then immediately upon hearing about the passion, the trouble that's ahead, runs ahead of Jesus and says, you know, God forbid it, Lord. And Jesus has to remind him that even in the midst of things where he's confused or where he doesn't like what the future is going to hold, he has to remember his life as a disciple. And as you said perfectly, he needs to respond to the Lord that God is the protagonist Uh in not just our personal relationship with him, of course he is, but also in our ministry, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Lord works and he works through the power of the Holy Spirit and our job is to respond to that movement and how easy it is. I know for me, and I've talked with a lot of people in parishes to see the work of Unleash the Gospel, to get excited, to say, this is great. And then when we hit a bump or when there is a challenge to say, okay, now I have to fix it all on my own in this uh, in this other way. And not to trust that the Holy Spirit is even working through things that look like the passion, things that oh, look absolutely. like, you know, Good Friday, or as you said, the silence of Holy Saturday. I don't mm. know what to do, but part of the passion, part of fidelity to Christ is to be comfortable even when there's confusion or mm-hmm. silence and, and waiting for the Lord to bring new life out of that. Yeah, I think this is such a critical point that you're both raising, which is that faithfulness and fruitfulness are always linked. And I often tell our ministers here, persistence will often overcome resistance. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. You know, listen, listen, listen to the Holy Spirit. You know, ask what 
not what what's happening, but what is possible. What is are we? What are we called to lean into at this time in the life of the church? And the other thing I often say is believe that God wants this more than we do, because He does. And so, I mean, I think when people catch that fire, there is nothing that they will do. They, I mean, I have seen. I was just working with somebody last week, and she's an administrative assistant in one of our parishes, and she's shy. And one of the presenters um, for an event couldn't speak. And she's like, well, this is my area of competence. It's about SMART goals. I, I think I could do it. And I was like, this is your time. You can do it. And, and she was talking about goal setting for discipleship, actually. She did an amazing job. She just had to, somebody had to say, you can do this. You are being called to this. This is your time. And I think our people are, uh, they need at that investment of encouragement. I think there's so much in the culture to be discouraged. I mean, I have stopped watching the news many times because of this. Um, there's enough to pray for as we look around. Um, but that investment of encouragement pays rich dividends um, for people today. Um, and I think that that's tremendously important for young people to see the hope that we're called to. Not just the reality, you know. So true. So true. One other question that I've just been mulling over and I'm curious to know your thoughts on. I've often heard it said that Catholics who don't believe in the real presence just don't know. And we just have to go and teach them. They must just, no one told them. And I'm sure that that's true to an extent, but I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts? People who, like, what do they need? People who are Catholic and maybe even are coming and practicing, but don't believe. This is a really interesting thing. So the Pew data that came out was the data that kind of scared folks and was seen as kind of shocking to to recognize that there's this large swath of Catholics who don't believe or don't understand the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I can tell you that Cara redid the survey, sort of re reworked it, looked at it, used language that was familiar. And that data is going to be released to the main body of bishops coming off at their November General Assembly. So you should know that there are there's some data that is coming. Um, we had a sneak preview of that data um, as an executive team. And what we are seeing is, seems to be fairly consistent. The vast majority of registered Catholics in our parishes are unclear about the church's teaching. So even if they know Jesus is there, they do not understand or know the precise language. And so I was thinking about this for my grandma. My grandma was a daily mass or sacristan of our church for 55 years. Would she... How would she have answered this question? I think she would have been unclear about how to answer it. And yet she firmly believed um. that Jesus was present in the Eucharist. So I think that would be some context around it. What I will say is that for the vast majority of registered Catholics, they are unclear. They do not understand the language. And so um, do they believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist? That's a tough one. I would say mm. the data lends itself to being really um, pretty negative in that regard, you know. And I think, I think we've got to look at our catechesis. I think we've got to look at the language we use. I think we have to be absolutely clear. Um, you know, when was the last time you heard um, a homily series on the real presence of Christ or the Eucharist? You know, so I, I think some of our priests do an amazing job at this. Um, I think we can do as Catholics. I think we can do a better job articulating the teachings of the church more clearly. And I think we have to look at the times of the year when people typically come back to church, Christmas, you know, the Palm Sunday, Easter cycle, and really look at those as moments where we can engage people in this conversation. I don't think there's ill will. People just don't know what they don't know. 
but I think I think I've seen it's been shocking actually to see the illiteracy around this issue actually, and I think the recent data is going to share it's going to point to that too. Yeah, beautiful, really helpful. I know one of the um, initiatives locally and kind of more broadly too is the I am here kind of collaboration mm-hmm. between the Archdiocese and the Hollow app. And I know that you're a part of that. Can you share a little bit about that? I mean, maybe all of our listeners are already well aware, but just in case there's one who doesn't know, <laughs> please tell us. Um, so the, I've been really impressed. I, like I said, I've been really impressed with your Leash the Gospel efforts. In fact, there are some elements that we have really appreciated here in the Diocese of Green Bay that we said, we should do it that, well, they've already created it. Can So we've partnered on a couple of initiatives that I've been just I've been really impressed by how you're imaging Unleash the Gospel and not just the language that's been using, that you're using, which I think is very, very intentional. The I Am Here campaign, I think the beauty of that is it's very much a pull strategy. So, you know, we talk a lot in evangelization about push strategies and pull strategies. Push strategies of evangelization are things like be more Catholic and here's how you do that, right? You need some of those. Poll strategies are witness strategies of attraction that I am here campaign is a really great example of um, drawing people more intimately through the power of someone's story to consider what their life looks like as a Christian. Along came Hallow in the midst of that and um, reached out and said, hey, we want to voice a series of Eucharistic um, adoration meditations. And we think you, with your Irish accent, could do that. And, um, and, and so I went back home and I remember I prayed about this for quite a while. And then I woke up, I was like three in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And I wrote, I just kept writing and writing and writing. And what I, I, what was sitting with me was the exhausted mother, you know, driving home from picking her children up from school or band practice. And she's driving to church and what does she need to hear? And so I wrote the the meditations to focus on a specific emotion. And I just heard from a young man in the Archdiocese of Chicago who was taking the subway in and out um, to his work. He's uh, an investment banker. And he said he just felt utterly alone and desperate. And he plugged in the the Hallow app. Yeah, and I am lonely was the Mm -hmm. meditation. And he listened to that. And he said he sat there with tears streaming down his face on the subway. And he realized that there was a loneliness that he had heard spoken in that meditation and that he needed for the first time in 20 years to get himself into a church to really dialogue with the source of that loneliness and that wound that he was carrying. And so um, so I've heard from moms, from dads, from professionals, from people all over the world who are listening and saying, yes, I am tired and I can still be a good Catholic. I am lonely. And I can still, you know, all of those natural human emotions, but you know, I am confused and Jesus calms the storm. I am tired. Come to me and I will give you rest. You know, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful symmetry. I think when you put together what we feel humanly and how Jesus intersects with us in our humanity and just give that over in adoration. And, and so you can listen to them in the car. You can listen to them in church. You can listen to them lying in bed by the goal is hopefully to encourage people who have not been to church in some time to just enter in, you know, after mass is done, maybe they haven't gone to mass in a while and just to sit there and have time with the Lord because the Lord will bless that. And so that, that, that was a really great project. I was really honored to be a part of it. Awesome. Thanks, Julianne. You know, one of the things as we wrap up here, we always like to do is 
just thank people who join us for the work they do for the church. Uh, you know, you are someone who has been out there and been doing a lot of creative things, uh, mm-hmm. but also in the trenches. You talk about visiting parishes that, you know, maybe just one or two or a handful of people see. And we know that without people willing to sacrifice their time, their effort, and to really care in those situations, our, our church isn't going to do the work we need to do to bring Christ to people, whether they're people in the pews who feel lonely or people who have not yet made their way uh, back to church or to church for the first time. So just on behalf of all of us in the mm-hmm. Archdiocese, but really from Beth and me personally, we just want to thank you for the great work you do for the church. That's beautiful. Thank you. Honestly, it's such an honor. Um, you know, when you lean into the Lord and you give your heart to him, you never know where he'll send you. And it's been the greatest adventure of my life. It has been the toughest journey. I mean, conversion of institutional structures, personal conversion is tough work. But yeah. I remember when I, um, I'll share this with your listeners, but when I was growing up, I um, I wanted to go to school, maybe law school or medical school. And I remember someone saying to me, um, when I said to them I was going to study theology, they said, really, that's not a good pathway. You know, you should be doing something else with your life. And I thought, if everybody has that attitude, who's left? We need, we need people. We need people who are willing. We need people who are uh, from all walks of life. People who are inter- interested in the intellectual work of the church, the pastoral work of the church, the taking care of the poor, graphic artists who want to do amazing things for Jesus. We need the best of the best. Mm-hmm. If I don't give my best to Jesus, who am I going to give it to? Mm-hmm. So um, I remember that moment when I was 16 going, I don't know what I'm doing, Lord, but you know what you're doing. So show me the way. And the rest is just um, leaning in. So I'm great. I'm very, very grateful to to uh, be in ministry at this time. And I would say for anyone that's listening, wondering if they can get through another year, rest, be restored in hope. Mm-hmm. There's much work to do, but the Lord will give you what you need. Yeah, that's exactly what we want our um, all of our listeners to know that they're not alone. I think just hearing about what you're doing, Julianne, and hearing about kind of the inner workings of the USCCB and how this came about and that it's all been about prayer and that our ministry can be nourished by prayer. I think how can that how can that not go right in the face of the enemy's lie that that we're alone, right? Mm-hmm. I, I just find for me, I find that the enemy is always whenever I have an amazing conversation, I always find afterwards there's more attacks because the Lord, because the enemy is so that's his critical strategy is to make us feel alone when we're in the trenches. So we give up. So we do fall into discouragement or despair. We just think it's just too hard, but it's not too hard. And there's so much joy in it. Right. Mm -hmm. As father Steve says, you can do hard things. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't, it didn't sound as meaningful for me. Can you say it? I I (laughs) poached that from Patty Breen, one of our great uh, uh, lay ecclesial ministers here in Detroit. She went through a lot of challenges and like, she just has this mantra, you can do hard things. And I think it's great. It's a great little reminder that God made us not just for the easy times, but he made us for the challenging times. He didn't just make us for the things that come natural or come easy, but he made us um, to do hard things. So, uh, Um, I'm yeah, a little I, more St. Therese than Joan of Arc <laughs> on that one. <laughs> so, so props to Pat, to Patty, like you can do hard things. That's, That's awesome. I love that. I, I need to meet Patty, but yes, you can do hard things. So good. This has been the Encounter Grow Witness podcast with Julianne Stans. Thanks for joining us, Julianne. You're welcome. God bless everyone. Thank you. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Encounter Grow Witness podcast wherever you get your podcast. Yes, sir.